Welcome to Sharkpedia, where your hosts, Megan and Amani, a couple of shark researchers that want to bring the science to you. We're creating a space to learn all things sharks and their relatives, answer your questions, and learn from the legends in the field. Get ready to jump in. Let's dive deep into the world of sharks. Welcome back, Sharkies, to Sharkpedia. We are so excited to have Dr. Carlisle joining us this week. We are going to talk about cookie cutter sharks, which are so weird, and we can't wait to talk about them. Um, would you like to introduce yourself to our Sharkies, Dr. Carlisle? Sure, yeah, and thank you for having me. This is fun. I'm always happy to talk about sharks, fish in general, but especially cookie cutter sharks. Um, so yeah, so I'm an assistant professor at the University of Delaware in the School of Marine Science and Policy. Um, I am a marine ecologist that kind of focuses on upper trophic level predators for the most part. So things that move around and swim a lot, but ended up kind of falling into sharks um, one way or another. It's a long story, but yeah, I actually didn't end up intending to be a shark scientist. I ended up being more consider myself to be an ichthyologist more than anything else, but I'm not complaining because it's fun, and I certainly love the animals, and I'm lucky to get to do this kind of research. Well, we are so excited to have you. Uh, before we get started, like we always do every week, Megan is going to go ahead and introduce the article and read the summary that we wrote before we dive into all of these questions, which is a lot of questions that we have about this awesome paper. Yeah, we're so excited. So the article that we're reading uh, with Dr. Carlisle this week is Integrating Multiple Chemical Tracers to Elucidate the Diet and Habitat of Cookie Cutter Sharks. So in this article, Carlisle et al. used different biochemical tracers, such as stable isotope analysis, fatty acid analysis, and environmental DNA, also known as eDNA, to determine the diet and overall trophic ecology of cookie-cutter sharks in Hawaii. They found that cookie-cutter sharks feed on a wide range of prey, including larger apex predators and smaller trophic-level species. The results also showed that diet and habitat may change with their size and the season of the year. Their use of eDNA allowed them to discover three major prey item groups in the stomach of 10 cookie-cutter sharks, including tuna, deep sea fish, and Pacific sari. The authors encourage us to use chemical tracers to future ecological studies of meso- and bathypelagic chondrichthians due to its ability to produce more detailed and holistic results. And one of the really cool findings of this paper was that large apex predators actually weren't the primary source of cookie-cutter diets, which was a bit surprising because that's an assumption that we've had in the past. So before we dive in to all the details of this paper, one of our first question is just some background information for our Sharky listeners. Um, can you just explain really quickly and briefly for some people that might not actually know this, what is a chondrichthian and uh, what is a cookie cutter shark? Let's just start at some of the basics. Sure. So uh, chondrichthian fishes are, well, fishes, but they have cartilaginous skeletons as opposed to bony skeletons, which most fishes, teleostean fishes have. So they have various aspects of their biology and ecology that are different than bony fishes. They generally have internal 
fertilization and give live birth for the most part some are egg layers but so they're actually a bit more like tetrapods and other kind of like terrestrial vertebrates in a lot of ways and some of the other fishes are um, but the cookie cutter shark is this uh, one of my favorites really just because it's this bizarre little animal that we know very little about and historically haven't known much about um, and one of the first ways people really discovered it was noting on whales and things these weird chunks missing out of them for originally they thought they might be bacterial infections or something like that and it was only in the 70s that they really started to figure it out that this was because there's this little shark basically looks like a big cigar sometimes they call them cigar sharks <laughs> um and they don't get very big max size for this species is about uh half a meter so about you know one and a half two feet um but what really kind of led this was that a lot of uh, naval submarines were being their sonar domes were being bitten and damaged and sometimes forcing the subs to return to their base um, because of this is the height of the Cold War, and for a while the Navy was freaking out because they thought this was like some secret Russian Soviet weapon, you know. And, and it turns out the Soviets, <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah, this is Soviets, one of my favorite cookie cutter shark facts. Yeah, the, the Soviets actually thought the same thing because it was happening to their subs too. And so, uh, but it was finally a, a marine biologist, and there's undersea cables kept getting bitten and things like that, and they had these distinctive bite marks that were like what they're seeing on whales and tunas, and they finally put two and two together and this weird shark, this little weird nondescript cigar looking shark have these crazy jaws that they have this kind of weak, small upper jaw, their lower jaw is this massive, robust, just shearing set of teeth that are all connected. Like it's a row of teeth. Like you think of most sharks, they have individual teeth, they have individual tooth replacement, they lose one pops up. These ones, they're a single fused plate of teeth and they are super, super sharp, just sharper than anything you can imagine. And um, they use those to scoop out these cookie cutter shaped plugs of tissue. And that was, turns out what they were, was happening to these subs and all this kind of submersible undersea equipment over through time. Um, but yeah, so it's this weird little thing and we just know a little about it and it lives in the deep sea, right? So it's mesopelagic, which means it lives in the twilight zone, which is about 200 meters down to about 1,000 or 1,200 meters. Um, goes deeper wow. than that probably, but you know, they aren't really seen, you don't see them. You know, and but people see a lot of things in the ocean. They love going whale watching. They love fishing, and pretty much if you go whale watching, you see big whales. You go to the the beach in California, you'll see elephant seals and things. And all these things have these little circular plugs and scars on them. And these are these cookie cutter shark bites, and they're just ubiquitous everywhere. Um, and that was kind of yeah, that's kind of what. I always thought it was interesting was like, wow, they must be, when you think about ecology and energy moving through food webs and things like that, and apex versus, you know, low trophic level predators where they feed on the food chain, like where does the cookie cutter shark fit, you know, because if it's yeah. eating all the taking bites out of orcas, you know, the top of the, and so like, are they the top of the food chain <laughs> or are they... <laughs> The bottom of the food chain, you know, it's kind of hard to know. And so, um, yeah. So this study ended up being this very opportunistic kind of thing where some friends and colleagues at the Monterey Bay Aquarium were trying to put together a, uh, a deep sea exhibit. And one of the things they wanted to hold were cookie cutter sharks. And so in the last, you know, five, 10 years, they've been finding, they can actually find them relatively frequently off the big island of Hawaii, off the coast, coast of Kona. And uh, so they went out and they trolled and they've caught a bunch. And... Not surprisingly, they didn't like being brought up to the surface and uh, they didn't do yeah. very well. So they all ended up dying. And, but that ended up giving us this opportunity where there's this 15 sharks that they caught 
that they froze and they're like, what can we do with it? And then my colleague, uh, John O'Sullivan at the Modern Bay Aquarium um, and uh, Jesse Porter. And uh, I can never, I, Ily Andruskevich, I'm trying to remember everyone on the paper and all the other authors, like it's kind of this really great organic just paper that came together. We're like, well, we could try this, we could try that. Um, and we ended up just kind of reaching out to different people. Dr. Lauren Meyer is in Australia with the fatty acid stuff. And we just ended up like, well, because we cut them open, their stomachs were mostly empty. And we tried to figure out what we could do. And um, Jesse Port and, and Eileen were really good at uh, uh, the eDNA. They brought the DNA metabarcoding aspect to it. And that's actually originally what they do. Because basically the idea is you could wash out these empty stomachs, flush them, and you potentially get these little shreds of DNA that you can identify. Um, so really, we couldn't learn anything using these kind of more traditional approaches. And so uh, we ended up just added more and more people to the team and kind of got these more and more kind of uh, technological and analytical approaches that we threw at the question and ended up with this kind of fun paper. It's definitely on the esoteric kind of side of things, <laughs> but uh, really, it was really fun to do. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. It, I mean, I loved reading this paper. And one of the things that was really interesting about it was your use of chemical tracers, which you kind of went a little bit into talking about eDNA. Um, but could you talk a little bit more about each of those three chemical tracers that you use? We have had one of your co-authors, Dr. Sora Kim, on to talk about stable isotope analysis, but not in the mm -hmm. context of prey items and, and figuring out diet. Um, yep. So I think it would be great to kind of talk about how that can be used for diet specifically, um, and then just hear more about what all th those three methods are. Um, yeah, because I definitely absolutely. didn't know, like, at least two of them. <laughs> yep, yep. No, I mean, and that was kind of the one of the fun parts. I mean, so yeah, so I mean, chemical tracers are basically just the what everyone always says is you are what you eat, right? So it's like the chemical composition, the chemicals that make up your the proteins and everything that make up your tissues are derived from what you eat, right? So you are what you eat, and the chemical composition can tell you of a consumer. So anything that eats anything, you can learn something about what it eats just by looking at the kinds of chemicals that are in its tissues. And so you already talked about stable isotope analysis. Um, and that's kind of was where my expertise actually lies a bit more than the other two. So the, the stable isotopes, basically what we did was we looked at the isotopic composition of their muscle and liver tissues, and those told us something about what they're eating. And so the muscle basically reflects uh, what you've eaten over the last six months to a year plus. So it's a long-term kind of integrated everything you've done and eaten over that period of time. The liver is much more metabolically active. There's a lot more going on in it. And so it's turnover rate, what we call turnover rate is a lot quicker. So it's basically, it's always rebuilding itself and incorporating new tissue. And, you know, it's just a lot more active. And so it represents a much shorter time frame, like a few, you know, few months maybe. And so by looking at the muscle and the liver, you get these different kind of time integrations of what this animals, these animals are doing in terms of diet or habitat. Um, and so by putting them together, you get these really kind of fun ways to kind of reconstruct what these animals have been doing over these different time frames that you can't do any other way. And so the nice thing is, is even if you get um, an empty stomach, I mean, one of the problems we have with understanding trophic ecology in animals that we can't see and stuff like that, and especially lots of animals like this where you can't get a lot of them, we traditionally look at their stomachs. So you catch a fish, you kill it take its stomach out and you open up the stomach and you see what's in there. You count it, you, you know, you weigh it and you do all this kind of stuff. You don't always want to do that because you don't necessarily want to kill everything. And then B, a lot of animals have nifty stomachs. Um, 
they get caught and they stress out, they'll regurgitate, they'll vomit everything up. Um, there's snapshots of what they've just recently eaten. And so you end up having to do a lot of stomach content analyses over a long time and over a lot of animals to really get a good idea. Um, but what's nice about these tracers approaches, and I'll get to the eDNA and um, fatty, uh, fatty acids in a second, is that every animal can kind of tell you its story, even if it has an empty stomach. And you don't actually have to kill them to get a muscle plug. These animals are already dead, so we're able to do some different things. But so the stable isotopes are telling us roughly in terms of like carbon and nitrogen, what and by looking at um, the isotopic composition of what their potential prey may be, you can then start to piece together how much of different things they eat. And so you can do this in a, a using stable isotopes in one way. And the other way, one of the other tools we can use is fatty acids. And so fatty acids use basically the different kinds of lipids and fats that are in your cells that come from different sources. And so different sources like phytoplankton, zooplankton, benthic uh, macroalgae, whatever, all have different fatty acid compositions and things that eat them then look like that. And those fatty acids don't change as they move through the food web. So they're these great tracers to figure out where these animals are getting their energy. Because you are what you eat. Because you are what you eat, exactly. And what's also great is some prey actually eat certain kinds of things and they'll have unique compositions of fatty acids that are very that are fingerprints for those species. So like cephalopods, squids, and things like that versus mammals versus deep sea animals versus shallow fish. They all have these unique fingerprints in terms of isotopes, fatty acids. Um, and so then by throwing those together, we can use those tissues to get an idea of what they're eating, where they're eating, when they're eating it, and these shifts over time. And then the eDNA, the DNA metabarcoding, basically, again, which, which I mentioned before, is this where we would take the stomach and you basically flush it and you get all that you basically try to get as much tissue out of it. And these were all empty for the most part, as I mentioned, but there's still stuff you can't see. There's slime, there's mucus, and there's all kinds of little bits of tiny pieces. And you basically then get that tissue and whatever it is. And oftentimes you can't see anything. It just looks like nothing came out, but you then amplify whatever DNA is in there. And you can then look at, you know, what is, what is, what is this DNA barcode match up to? Is it cephalopods or is it this or that? And so by doing that, but that actually tells you ident uniquely, like this is this species or this is this genera of animal. Whereas the other ones are much more kind of wishy-washy. They give you an idea of what they are, but you don't really, aren't really able to nail down to the species level usually. That's so cool. That's really cool. Yeah, and so and so if you think about cookie cutter sharks in particular, because they have this unique kind of dentition where they'll take these scoops that historically, when people would look at them, they would find this mass of goop or chunks of tissue. They're like, oh, this is muscle. Maybe it's blubber. Maybe it's this. And so it's, and then oftentimes, about half the time, historically, if you look at all the stomach contents for cookie cutter sharks, been looked at about half are empty, and then most of the ones that actually have some and have these indistinguishable just visually you know again thinking about back in the 50s and the 60s before a lot of these approaches happened they're taking plugs of something you know out of big animals but and they actually found tons of squid beaks and one of the interesting things is the squid beaks some of the squid beaks appear to come from squid that are bigger than the sharks so i don't know how that happens but apparently it does <laughs> what um yeah so uh, talk about like the definition of your eyes being bigger than your stomach <laughs> yeah yeah and but so that's kind of one of the other things that when we were looking at this kind of jumps out at you is when you look at what we know about what these deep water animals eat or actually most animals especially in the ocean sharks and fishes is like 
we really don't know a lot. And when I dug into literature for cookie cutter sharks, I was really shocked at how little data there were. And so over all of our information about what they eat, it ends up coming to like from four papers over the last 50 years in every ocean basin. And they've looked at like 150 stomachs. And that's actually not bad compared to lots of other species. And so if you look at like all we know from diets for like this, this family of sharks, these are called, this family is, um, I'm sorry, order squaliform sharks. These are generally deep sea mesopelagic fishes, generally live a long time, really abundant, one of the most diverse groups of sharks. And almost all the stomach content data and all the diet data we have are based on less than 40 individuals over you know decades of research. And so it's like, how can you categorize what these animals are doing, what their role is in these food webs based on these just tiny bits of data? But Especially because it's like worldwide too, right? Like exactly. the samples that you have weren't from one location. They were like 150 stomachs, but all around the world. So how exactly. do you yeah. summarize all of that information about an entire yep. species? Yep. And this is one of the things I was, when I, when I'm talking, working with my students is like, you know, look at the data. And so like, cause these, these numbers and this information gets ingested into the literature and into our collective consciousness. And you say like, Hey, we know cookie cutter sharks eat, they eat squid and whales. And then you look and they're like, well, actually that, yes, but that's based on like this ridiculously small amount of information. And you, but that information is used in management and conservation. And this happens right. all the time. And so it's important to dig back and look at these numbers and be critical of a lot of the information we have, because you can easily be kind of think that we know something, but almost without, you know, any exceptions that I can think of. If you look at data like there's always it's it's almost always especially for the oceans big you know predatory species that we haven't studied very well it's just even if we think we know what they eat you look at those studies and there's not much there oftentimes not always sometimes they're very well characterized but for these deep sea animals that are hard to see and study um, there's just not much out there and so the nice part about this chemical tracer approach is that every animal you get whether it's alive or dead, you can basically get a little piece of it and then you can learn something about what it's doing. And so the idea is that then you can, even if it has an empty stomach, you can learn something about what it's doing, what it's doing out in nature and what its role is in those open ocean food webs. And it's just probably the only way to get at some of these questions, I think. Yeah, I think I saw in your discussion section that by using all these different types of chemical tracer techniques, you were able to get 400% more data than if you had just done gut content analysis where you flush out their stomachs to yeah. see what's in their stomachs, which is just like really impressive. And I, I, I wanted our listeners to really know that and hear that because being able to get all of this information that you guys got, it gives such a holistic, more holistic picture and view of what's going on with that individual animal than sometimes what we're able to get just from one technique. So combining all these techniques together, you get a lot more information, which is so cool. Yeah, absolutely. You got an like, incredible team to do it. Yeah, no, you can't. Science is a team sport, and um, but and that and to to follow up on what you just said there, that also is you know our study was based on fourteen or fifteen animals, right? And so we we there's so much work to be done. This is the our best you know understanding right now of what this population in the Central Pacific does. But again, I would be the first one to say that this needs more work you know, to really kind of flesh it out. And you don't want to fall into the trap I just mentioned where it's like, yeah, okay, we found this out. Yeah, this is our interpretation of these data, but we haven't looked anywhere else. 15 is a small sample size, no matter how you cut it. Right. You know, we didn't get much in the way of small animals. There's different 
all kinds of different things that end up influencing how strong your inferences can be. And I, I'm confident with what we kind of found, but you know, it's always good to be humble and realize that yeah, yeah. anything you say can be wrong totally. And I hope that someone will, people will continue down this path and keep looking at these animals because I'm, I hope we're right, but we very well may not be, but that's how science works. Right. Do you, I'm curious why chemical tracers haven't really been used in the past. Do you know, or do you have like an idea of why that might be? Is this just a very new kind of novel method or has no one thought of it? Is it hard? (laughs) Yep. No, it's some of all that. And, but it's mostly like, it's, they're relatively new techniques and just the, you know, with improving analytical capacities and, you know, we're always involved developing new tools and approaches to ask these questions. But I mean, stable isotopes have been around for a long time, stable isotope analysis. And, but for ecologically, like asking ecological questions is really didn't even start taking off until probably the eighties. And then wasn't really starting being applied in marine sciences in a serious way, probably until like the two thousands and fatty acids is similar. Like it's been around for a long time, but it's just been our ability. And I think that it takes a while for these, tools to kind of permeate through the community and people start to realize that they're um, that these tools are out there that they can use to ask these questions. And I mean, I had, when I was, the reason I got into this was because I, my background was actually in biologging. So electronic tagging and tracking and all this kind of stuff. And I just realized that I can, tags are great at telling you they're going over, the animals are going over here and doing this kind of thing, but you don't know what it is. What does that actually mean in terms of what's the ecological ramifications or the biological implications for these movement patterns? And for for fishes and sharks, like, well, they're going there and people are always say, well, it's, they're going over there and doing this to feed or to mate or to pup. And you're like, well, okay, sure. Maybe it's one of those, but how do we figure it out? So you have to start bringing these other tools in. And for me, it was, that's where I really got into tracers because you end up asking very similar questions with them. And um, depending on the kinds of questions and the systems you ask, sometimes the, these tracer approaches are better at understanding habitat use or movement patterns than they are for diet, for example. So there's a lot of, impl- there's a lot of nuance in terms of how you can use these tools. But I think the reason they haven't been broadly applied is just that the tools are relatively new and they were historically a lot more expensive than they are now and so prices are going down capabilities are improving more places are doing these types of this work and so whereas before maybe there's a few labs in the world that might do it so like right now mercury isotopes stable isotopes for example are a great example they're really cool there's a lot of new things we're learning from them but there's like three or four labs in the world that do them and it's super expensive and so over time hopefully that'll go down and then they'll become more widely used Science is expensive. <laughs> so expensive. Um, so from each of these chemical tracers that you used, you analyzed a few different things, including comparing the size and sex and foraging habitat, prey contributions, and comparisons of potential prey items. And what were some of the big takeaways from this? Did you notice, I know you talked about this in your discussion, uh, the difference in size based on what they were eating and things like that. Yeah, and so this is kind of this kind of is where the the utility of these different approaches kind of kind of this integrative approach ended up being really useful. So, for example, our almost all of our animals were kind of the mid to larger size, like about thirty centimeters or large, which again is not large. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but for them it is. Um, but so that's most of our animals were like this kind of fairly narrow size range of 
27 to like 40 centimeters or something like that. And so they don't actually even probably mature until they're about 35 or 40 centimeters. I don't think we really probably have a good handle on that either. Um, but we didn't have a great size range. And so most of our animals were this kind of bigger size class. And we had this one little guy that was just this adorable little 17 centimeter, you know, about six, seven inches. And just this little tiny cigar. Oh, and such a little guy. Thing. Yeah. <laughs> and it was so cute. And it was just, it looks totally different than all the other ones in terms of the stable isotope composition, the fatty acids. Uh, we didn't get any eDNA stuff out of its stomach, so we can't didn't get any inference from that. But um, right away, just that tells you something different is going on with that little guy. And again, our sample size is one, <laughs> but that's all we have. And as far yeah. as, I mean, it's has anyone ever seen a small cookie cutter shark? As far as I know, we may be the first people to ever see one that small. <laughs> you know, I except for ones that are near term, they sometimes will catch gravid females and they'll inside their uterus they'll have the pups. But um, it looked totally different, and it had the the nitrogen isotope composition and the fatty acids were very distinctive, and they looked a lot like what you would um, what basically deep sea, deep mesopelagic, kind of almost pathopelagic food web looks like so they either they just were eating things that went down that stayed down at depth when they stayed down at depth or um their size limited so they're small they're tiny and these are not like exactly firecrackers of animals right these aren't like ferraris or something like that <laughs> these are pretty sluggish you know you just offended creeps. all the cookie cutter sharks <laughs> <laughs> forgive me someday um, but yeah so they can't really move that fast probably and so actually that's one of the ways they think that they actually feed is that um like most deep water animals they have use bioluminescence and so they have these luminescent um organs on their their ventral side on their stomach and but if you look at them one of the things that's distinctive is they have this black collar basically right around their throat around their gills and so like a lot of these animals that live in these deep sea habitats, what they do is they'll look up and they'll look for silhouettes because there's even at those depths, they call it the twilight zone because there's enough light where these eyes can still detect things. And it's so one of the great things you can see is a silhouette of something above you. So there's a predator, there's food. And one of the best ways animals can camouflage themselves in these environments is they basically, because again, every predator is looking up, looking for silhouettes. So anything below you is looking up and looking for that silhouette. And so what they do is their eyes can detect exactly the kind of wavelengths and um, kind and strength of the light, the illumination, the downwelling light that's coming down. And they can make their luminescent organs produce that exact same amount of light and type of light. And so what it does, if you look up, it makes them disappear. They blend into that upwelling, that downwelling light. But that collar, it doesn't have luminescent organs on it. So if you looked up, instead of seeing a shark, you'd see this little black spot. And you'd be like, oh, there's something to eat. And so the idea is, and the, the, the author of the paper, that Edie Witter, back in 1988 or something like that, came up with this. And it's a great idea. And it's, they call it uh, predatory counter-illumination. So basically, it's like you make yourself look like something small and yummy. And the idea is that then some, that big thing will come close to them, and they'll just float there. And then when the animal gets close, they can just go quick flick the tail, suck onto the side of the animal and take their little scoop. And, you know, again, we've never seen this. We have no idea, but that's the hypothesis is they basically float there and they're, again, like a lot of these animals that live in these environments, they, they have to maintain basically neutrally, neutral buoyancy. They don't want to have to always swim. 
And so they have these huge livers, but they also have an enormous amount of just lipid, like oil, in their body cavity. So when you cut open the Shukikara shark, it's just oil just spills out. And oh. so they, just, they, can just kind of, they can just kind of float there, not doing much. So you can imagine if you're a small one just floating there, it's not like you can really do much against a big animal, or maybe your jaw isn't big enough to even get through the skin. So, um, but so anyway, so they think that they, they float there, and they basically... At some point, something swims in front of them or it's attracted to them. And then that's, that's when they use this unique jaw morphology. They basically like use their top jaw to basically anchor their mouth onto the animal. And they use their bottom jaw to scoop. And then they basically, they'll spin their, their body, we think, and basically just pull out these perfect, and they really are just perfect, like ice cream scoops of, of tissue. And <laughs> The real Sharknado is cookie cutter sharks eating. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, it's so that, that, so it's, it's a crazy kind of strategy, but, but then that's the thing is so that's what we've always thought about, but that obviously wouldn't be useful for eating small squid and small lantern fishes and all those little critters that make up most of the biomass of, that lives in those areas in the deep sea. Do we know how big cookie cutter sharks are when they're born? Uh, we think it's about 14 centimeters or 14, 15 centimeters. So that, so that step, 17 that centimeter was, was, was pretty young. Pretty young. Yeah. But do, do we know how fast they grow? No idea. No idea. Oh, no idea. so cool. Yeah. But no idea like longevity or any of that kind of stuff. Really. So how are people typically getting the, uh, like if you wanted to study a cookie gutter shark, I know you said you got them through trawls off the coast of Hawaii. How would other people get them? <laughs> That's the problem. It's really hard. So they don't, it's not like you can put a hook in the water and they're going to bite. Right. <laughs> um, and so typically most of them that have been caught are in research trawls, like deep water trawls. And if there's fisheries that are in deep water, they'll catch them. Um, but then sometimes some of the drift gill nets and things will catch them, especially if they're very fine mesh. But most, again, most of these animals are fairly small. And so they go through nets that are supposed to catch things like tuna and sharks and billfish and whatever. But so, yeah, and so that kind of. The other aspect is this diel vertical migration, right? And so diel vertical migration is this you, the biggest animal migration in the world that happens every day where there's this just soup of critters that live in, you know, 300 to a thousand meters. And at night they come up to the surface to feed. And in the dawn, at dawn, they go back down. And the idea is they go up in the night because surface predators are very visual. They can't really see, they're not going to be as active. And so they basically go up and access all that productivity and all that food that's available in the surface waters. It's not available in the deep sea. And then at night, there during the day, then they go back down where they're safe from those big predators and they spend their day down there resting and digesting and getting ready to go back up again. And so when we looked at that, those little, that little shark, it looked like basically it was just eating animals that either stayed down because not all animals vertically migrate. Some will stay at depth all the time, just eating those and the other vertically migrating small critters. So when I say that's like micronecton, it's like little tiny lantern fish, tiny squid, little ufows, little crustaceans, shrimps, and things like that. Um, and they all go up. And so these sharks and everything will go up at night. And that becomes this huge smorgasbord that everything can kind of eat at night, right? Because that those resources, even if you're stuck in the surface, you can't dive down deep, you get too cold or whatever, you can still eat those mesopelagic and bathypelagic critters at night when they're up there. And so the question with the small guys, the small cookie cutter sharks is, do they vertically migrate, but they're 
basically just too small to take bites out of the big things that are available because they could be following that those vertically migrating small things up and down or are they just not is it too far for them to go because i mean some it's basically like when you talk about the depths and size of these animals and the size of the migrations it's equivalent basically to me running 10 miles in 30 minutes every dawn oh. and every dusk right so it's oh my it's, gosh yeah, and it's, again, it's a huge, it is the biggest migration in the world, and most people don't really think about it, but in every ocean, every pond, every lake, this happens, everything comes up at night and everything goes down, but it's crazy, and this is where, like, have you ever heard of the deep scattering layer? Like, if you ever go out in a boat in the ocean, I mean, that's when they discovered it in the 1940s in World War II when sonar was invented, and they were going out looking for German submarines, and they said, there's a bottom out here, we're getting this reflection, it looks like the bottom of the ocean, but it's in hundreds of thousands of feet of you know like 300 meters of water and the bottom is supposed to be like you know not even like more like 4,000 meters of water. So we know the bottom is 4,000 meters below us but we see the bottom is actually 500 meters what is this and then they'd see at night it comes up and it took them a long time to figure out that this is all these animals that are coming up and down that's why they call it the deep scattering layer because it scatters the sound waves and the sonar that's off. so cool the <laughs> animals are messing with us yeah yep <laughs> But yep. very cool daily migration. That is such a long journey for such a little shark. And so those cookie cutter sharks are following it, we think. Because yeah, the right. only time that people ever saw them or interacted with them was at night. And during the day, they're probably down up to maybe 1,500 meters underwater. And then they're, during the day, they're down that deep. At night, they come up. And so oftentimes when you the animals get bit, they think they get bit at night. And actually, actually, there is just back, I don't know, in 2010, it was the first instance, recorded instance of a cookie cutter shark attack on a human. Oh, I was just going to ask that. Yeah, <laughs> yes. And, and it happened in Hawaii. Someone was swimming one of the channels swim across the islands. And uh, it was in the middle of the night. For some reason, they do these channel swims at night. And that's when these sharks come up. And so the shark came up and it hit the guy in the sternum, but it couldn't get a good bite. So there's a little kind of a cookie. And there's paper on this. You can download the paper and look at it. And then it, <laughs> oh got, him in the, and then it got him in the calf and took out a perfect cookie cutter shark sized bite out of his, um, his calf. He was fine. Ow. But it would have hurt. Yeah. Ow. But, it's, but recent, last year um, or year before, there have been a couple more of those where these swimmers across the channel swim in Hawaii have gotten hit. Um, Interesting. By cookie cutters. But again, that's at night when they're coming up. Is that channel swim something more recent that started happening? Probably. That people do? I, I have no idea what the history of that is, but for whatever reason, they do these swims at night. And again, you're in Hawaii where it's like, you know, deep, 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 deep water. And you're swimming across probably, you know, a couple thousand meters of water when you're swimming between these islands, potentially. Right. And that's, you know, that's where these sharks were caught. And so there, and, and actually there's been a few times people have found out you can actually see them. There's one or two videos where they have these um, blackwater divers, dive companies that go off of Kona, where people go diving at night. And basically you go dive out off, you know, in this thousand meters of water, 2000 meters of water, you just go down and you sit there and you see crazy things. And they've started seeing cookie cutter sharks coming up at that time. And so that's, <laughs> that's kind of like some of the few examples of live cookie cutter sharks swimming around doing what they're doing that people have ever seen. Interesting. Yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. It's, yeah. So you know, your your results kind of showed that they eat a lot of smaller things, which the general assumption, right, is that they're eating large predators um, and larger fish. Do you mm -hmm. think that that kind of 
the results were skewed differently than what we assume they eat just because of what we're seeing or like observations of what they're eating. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think that's exactly it. And that's kind of our basic question, like when we started, this was like, do they really just eat big stuff? It's a very right. simple question. <laughs> and that was, that, was our, that was our basic question we wanted to answer. And it was like unambiguous when we got the data, which is back, which is great. It was not like any question about it. Um, but yeah, so I think it's just like it, we are, our interpretations and our impressions of what goes on around us is biased by what we see. And what we see when you're on the ocean is generally the stuff that's at the surface and lives at the surface and stuff you see are things we're interested in. So we're paying attention to the tunas and the whales and the sharks and things like that. Like I said, I mean, a lot of these pictures you see of cookie cutter shark bites are from whale watching boats and things like that. And so it's just because those are the animals we're interested in, these big charismatic megafauna, um, either to eat or to look at. Um, that's where we're seeing the bites. So we assume that that's what they do. Because why wouldn't you? I mean, those that's great food. You know, lots of blubber. It's a ton of calories and a chunk of fat, right? So I'll keep those little sharks going a long time if you can get a bite of that. So it makes sense. But it's just like that. Those are not that available, really, for those animals. Right. Especially if you think about that diel cycle. If they're down deep during the day, they can only access them at night. And so what are they eating the rest of the time? And then we're not seeing. And actually, if you look at most of the bites on these big animals, they're all bigger shark bites. So the little shark bites, little sharks are not biting things in the way that the big ones are. And so if you look at, and so actually there's a great study from Hawaii um, that looked at all of the, that go to the Honolulu fish market. And basically they surveyed the fish market weekly for a couple of years. And they basically noted all the species that cookie cutter shark bites on. And found there's a great paper by uh, Dr. Papastamatio down at Florida International. Um, and actually John O'Sullivan, my collaborator at Monterey Aquarium was involved in that one too. But small world um but yeah but cool all of his results actually matched exactly with ours that like you know it's the swordfish these then the swordfish the big animals that they do like to eat like they all definitely love swordfish and they love opa and some of these other things but those are all animals that use the deep scattering layer and vertically migrate so they're the ones that are actually probably overlapping in terms of distribution vertical distribution throughout the diel cycle so they're in the same place cookie cutter sharks are during the day and the night whereas some of these other things are only available to cookie cutters at night when they're up in the surface if the and so for swordfish for example they got all the only big cookie cutter sharks took bites out of them and the assumption of that is because the bite marks are bigger right and so they're like and you can estimate the size of the shark based on the size of the bite so there may be some sort of but cook uh, swordfish are deep scattering layer specialists, they live down there, right? And so they have big eyes, they are highly adapted. So they can probably see these little guys and like, yeah, I see you, I know what you're doing. Um, whereas these other animals are not necessarily. But so there's that's gonna be where that size and kind of their ability, the swimming ability is gonna probably play a role. So those little guys probably just can't catch bigger prey. So they'd be stuck eating small things that don't move kind of like them. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. <laughs> It's just yeah. so interesting. So I guess the big takeaways from this study that you were able to discover with all of the chemical tracers that you used is that really their diet is much more diverse than we think, than we originally thought. 
And the primary source of their diet is actually um, much smaller prey items and meso um, predators than we thought, right? Not these apex predators like we originally had this assumption, which is so interesting. It's so interesting. Um, are, are there any other big takeaways that we didn't uh, talk about or how you discovered it that we should go over about this paper? Oh, you know, I mean, I can get into all the fun stuff. <laughs> I think, of course, it's all very important. But no, I mean, that's the major thing was just it was pretty, it was a nice, clear answer to our question of is it just the big things it's like no and actually pretty much most of what they eat um is the small stuff and it's, again it's that stuff that makes sense it's the stuff that lives down there and it's kind of living and exhibiting the same migrate vertical migrations and using the same habitats um but beyond that it was just the kind of insights in um the size-based things that they're probably you know maybe a difference in vertical migration or what they can actually eat based on their size, which makes total sense as well. But also there's some potential seasonal changes that we saw um, where sharks seem to actually potentially. Uh, so what we found was we looked at the liver isotopes, for example. And so the stable isotopes and fatty acids in the liver and liver is very, as I mentioned, very metabolically active. And so it represents a shorter time frame, right? And so it's the recent diet. And so the liver basically told us that they were not eating as much of the big stuff recently prior to when these animals were caught and these caught were caught in the summer so basically in the spring these animals in early summer these animals were not eating really they're pretty much mostly focusing on the small stuff much more so than the rest of the year and so the question is is and, and what's the fatty acids actually some of the fatty acid biomarkers were indicative of low nutritional quality like basically like the whatever they're eating it doesn't have a lot of nutritional value and so they're kind of eating junk food potentially and so those meso, shark junk food those meso, i love it <laughs> yeah and so those mesopelagic fishes and things like that mctophids and lantern fishes and squids and things like that they generally have a way less calories and way less energetic uh content than those animals that live up the surface and so the interpretation of that is that seasonally there's some movement either of the sharks or of their big prey where they're just no longer to act, able to access them and we, I have no idea which answer, which one that is, but that paper I mentioned before, the one that was based on the fish mark in Hawaii, found a similar thing where the numbers of cookie cutter shark bite marks decreased at the time of year when we were when we would interpret them as to stop eating those big things. So oh, we stopped seeing. Yeah. So it, and again, this is why it's fun doing multiple approaches, and you kind of start pushing all these pieces together, and they all match up which makes right. you feel a little bit better about what you're saying. Right. Well, cuz another thing that you said in your paper is that the chemical tracers that you used have different time frames, right? So the muscle, for example, can go up to a year in time of information that that animal's yeah. storing whereas the liver is much shorter time scale. So you get like a nice overlap. What would you recommend for people in the future to study um if they were going to look at cookie cutter sharks and they wanted to understand more about their ecology? What would you recommend? Well, I mean, <laughs> I guess not to toot my own horn, but I'd say do this kind of what we did. I mean, I think that the, you know, throwing the kitchen sink at it is kind of the only way to do it. Because again, it's just so hard to get samples. So anytime yeah. you get one of these animals, each one is incredibly valuable. And so yeah. the way we view it is how can we squeeze the most out of these animals that we can? And that's why we end up like, well, we have tissue. So what can we do with tissue? And so we did everything. We could. And there's, you know, always new things that are coming out. And so I have no idea in five or 10 years what kind of new tracers may be available. 
Um, but I think that the hard part is usually accessing the animals. And that's, if you look at all those studies, again, it's like hundreds of animals ever looked at. And it's just because you can't go out and catch them. You can't go target right. cookie cutters. It's, I was on a cruise where we did hundreds of trolls and we caught four, right? And so it's like, you can't go out and say, I want to study cookie cutter sharks. That's the that's problem. That's a very low catch per unit effort. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so that's why there's, it's so hard to study all these animals is like, how do you access them to learn about them? And the open yeah. ocean, and most people have a hard time understanding how big the deep sea and the open ocean is. Oh yeah, I in definitely don't fully. I don't think my brain could fully comprehend the size yep. of the ocean. I think it would just go into overdrive. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy how when you look at the numbers, and so it's just this huge volume. And you know, we live on this little, like, surface peel of livable <laughs> space on the surface of the planet, but like ninety-five percent of the livable volume of the planet is in the the deep sea, basically. Then, so it's crazy, and so it's like the most verte abundant vertebrates in the planet live down there. You know, things that most people have never heard of are the most abundant animals in the planet. Probably. Yeah. So basically deep sea research and cookie cutter shark research should just be called everything but the kitchen sink research. <laughs> whatever you that's, have. That's a great, I mean, absolutely. <laughs> because it's so hard and it's expensive to get out. It's hard to get out in those places where they live. It, you have to have a big boat. <laughs> yeah. And, and you a have lot to have a way resources. to get down deep sea. It's expensive and not yeah. many places and people can do that. So it's that's why these opportunistic studies are important, I think, because you can't really it's not like if you because a lot of scientists be like, Well, you didn't get enough sample size, you can't really see anything. Well, this is the best we can do. Yeah. You know? So again, it's just taking advantage and and from my own personal viewpoint, whenever I see a there's an animal that's dead in front of me, i I'm I'm like, oh, this this is sad. I don't want to kill animals. But we're going to let's learn what we can from them. Let's make the most out of it. Right. And, and I mean, you learned yeah. a lot of information from 10 animals. Like yeah, a lot. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Very that was kind cool. of the fun part, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, we have some listener questions that I'd like to ask you as well. And actually, we answered a lot of them during the interview, which is awesome. Um, but we have a few of them that I think we could ask. Some of them are pretty simple. Some of them are just general cookie cutter questions. So no problem if you don't know everything about the cookie cutter shark. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I have no problem saying I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Good. We'll start with an easy question. T. Grayland on Twitter wants to know, are they really that brown coloration in nature or is that just a result of preserving them? No, they're brown. They're pretty much, they're very nondescript brown, blackish. I mean, their bottom is a lot, oftentimes a little um, lighter, actually. But they're, they're pretty brown to black. The only part distinguishing kind of marking on them is that kind of black collar that I mentioned around their throat. Other than that, it's just brown. Again, awesome. they live in the deep sea. There's no light. You don't have to yeah. be colorful. In yeah. fact, color is bad down there. Right. That makes sense. I'm almost surprised they're not black, though, because it would, like, blend. I don't know, blend better. Yeah, but I feel like that probably they're the band on their neck is darker than the rest of them. Oh, so that's I'm guessing true. that it's for that because if they were black, it would be really hard to do that yeah. kind of counter yeah. shading yeah. approach. Counter illumination, counter yeah, shading. Counter -illumination. Yep. Yep. Yeah, counter oh, illumination. Yeah. Such a good point. This is one of my favorite things about cookie cutter sharks. Joey Mayer asked, is it true that they shed their whole set of teeth at once? Which I have read before, and I was going to ask if when you did stomach content analysis, is there a way to quantify them swallowing that entire bottom row of teeth? <laughs> yeah, no, they do. That's that's they've actually seen that. And those 
that's one of the things that has been observed pretty consistently through those studies that I've talked about, those few studies that looked at stomach contents, is finding whole sets. Of, so they lose because their teeth are fused. Right. They lose a whole set at a time. So they lose a whole row. And actually what they found is that piranhas and some other animals do exactly the same thing. And they have fused teeth. And because you can't have a broken teeth and still basically have a cookie cutter, right? You got to have a constantly very sharp set of teeth. And so when they lose them, if you think about the environment they live in, it is very nutrient poor. There's not much down there. And that's why they come to the surface. And it's just, it's a very low productivity, low nutritional kind of environment. And so there's not a lot of calcium down there. And so you can't just drop your teeth. That's good. That's a huge loss for you. And so you swallow them and you basically, oh the idea is they ingest it and then can right. reuse the calcium and the nutrients that are locked up in those teeth. That makes sense. But oh my gosh. It's so, I like, doesn't, you'd think that would hurt to just swallow an entire bar of teeth. How do they not cut their own stomach? I have no idea. I mean, these tar- these teeth are sharp like you. I mean, you just brush them and you have a deep cut i mean these are sharper than any other kind of sharp teeth i've ever come across they're literally like razor sharp it's crazy i wonder if anyone's looked at like their stomach lining and like their intestine lining to see if it's like thicker cut up. Than, or, or cut up yeah, yeah I, I have no idea I, <laughs> I don't think anyone has but there, i didn't see in our stomachs we saw no evidence of we didn't find any teeth and yeah. their, their stomachs looked fine <laughs> as far as i could tell no no wounds or anything like that Oh, it's so interesting. This reminds me of some of my worst nightmares where I like lose an entire row of teeth. <laughs> Goodness, I'm glad I'm not a cookie cutter. Um, okay, so Organ Bert 5 wants to know what is their general life cycle? Are they oviparous or viviparous, which is live birth or egg bearing? Yeah, so they're live, they give live births, but they have a, 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 like I think it technically I can't, but they're they're change they change some of the terminology they use for these different reproductive strategies. But sharks have like some of the most diverse reproductive strategies of any vertebrate in the planet. It's crazy, yeah. The kind of stuff they do, um, but they basically have what we call aplacental viviparity or they're ovoviviparous. So they basically have the babies in utero and their uterus, and it has a yolk sac that they live off of. And the mom doesn't provide them really with anything else. Um, some species they do; they form pl- placental connections or give them histotroph or uterine milk or things like that to actually swing swallow or eat or sometimes produce unfertilized eggs for them to eat cookie cutter sharks to the best of our knowledge don't do that they basically are oviviparous. they give birth to small little babies that are um little versions of the adult but in they're maintained or they're they're fed and provisioned by their moms through this yolk sac so they have this yolk sac they basically live off like a chicken egg kind of as they're developing do we know how many they can give birth to at a time I don't remember off the top of my head. They found a few, but it's I think it's on the order of 10 to 20. Not very big because, again, these are not very big animals. And yeah. So, I was going to say, honestly, that's more than I would have expected because they're so small already. Yeah. And if they're born around – if they pup out around 14 centimeters, that's like a lot. That's a big – I mean, especially if those, if those animals are 40 centimeters. I mean, if you think about it, that's, you know, a quarter of their It's a quarter of their size. So I think it's, <laughs> it's probably going to be closer to that 10. I, I remember that numbers. I've seen it, but I don't remember what it. It's not many. It's, that is so cool. Okay. Audrey Bates wants to know, what is the strangest organism they have been found to bite? Uh, well, probably humans. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say that. Yeah, that's, yeah. That's really or, or submarines, I guess. Submarines. Yeah, I was going to say, strangest non-organism would be submarines. But I think, I think it's safe to say that if it's 
if it's in the water with a cookie cutter shark, it's been bitten by it. Yeah, I, I don't. That makes sense. Yeah. No need for selective yeah. feeding. Yeah, just I, don't, I, don't, I don't know. That I couldn't tell you exactly <laughs> what the weirdest thing is, but they eat. And actually, there's some very rare beaked whales um, that are very, very rare, very poorly understood. And they've found tons of cookie cutter sharks with beak whale chunks in them. If they identified, actually, their DNA made of arachnids, similar to what we did. So they'll eat even the very rare stuff. Yeah. Okay, yeah. I'm going to ask our last question on kind of a joke, funny question, and then we'll get into your field story. Uh, Chanel Zapp asked, if a cookie cutter shark had a favorite cookie, what would it be? And I just thought that was funny. <laughs> That's a good question. I'd probably say an Oreo. Ooh, why? Because yeah, it looks like it's it? Kind of. It's <laughs> nice and perfectly circular. It's got the, you know creamy filling seems kind of like a cookie cutter shark in some ways i love it i love that answer <laughs> so much my mind went straight to snickerdoodle but i don't have any justification for that other than i just feel in my gut that they would <laughs> like leave us open to debate right <laughs> for sure all right thank you for entertaining <laughs> that okay so now we'll get to our favorite part of our segment which is field stories and so we're really excited based on what you said before we started recording that you had many to choose from so we'd love to hear your field story <laughs> well you know i uh, yeah i really kind of had to wreck my brain about this um but one of the funnier kind of weirder i guess stories was when I was in graduate school in California. Um, I don't even remember what I was doing, but I was diving off of, and as my did grad school in Monterey Bay, California at Moss Landing Marine Labs. And I was diving off of Cannery Row, which is the famous, you know, Steinbeck place and Monterey Bay Aquarium's there. And I was down the kelp forest right off of there. And we were doing something, I think we're doing some quadrats for something, or maybe we're recovering some acoustic receivers. I don't exactly remember. It doesn't matter. But so we were down there, and we're, we're getting ready to get off, roll off the boat. Um, a sea otter, and California sea otters are an endangered species, very cute and cuddly. They're kind of like the mascot of, of like California, Monterey, Central California, certainly. People are obsessed with them. I mean, they're very cute, right? And um, adorable little animals. Aren't they also like slightly evil? Oh, they're horrible. Yeah. No, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to get into that. No. Like, <laughs> people are like, oh, I love dolphins. And then every shark scientist is like, I do not like dolphins. Yeah. No, I, I, I have, yeah, I have lots to say about otters. This is part of it. But um, so we were dying, we're getting ready. This otter showed up and he just started kind of swimming on the boat and kind of squeaking at us. We're like, okay, fine. You, know, you see him all the time out there. But this one was way more interested. And throughout our whole dive, it was just all over me. And it was like grabbing my head, grabbing my fins, doing all kinds of stuff. And I was like, you know, and, and it's, this is again, I'm there. It's a Canary Rose. So it's a tourist trap, right? There's people everywhere. There's kayakers. And you don't want to be seen harassing the sea otter, right? And Definitely not. You know, and so this, we did two dives and this otter was just harassing us the whole time. And we actually, between dives, it got on the boat with us and it started like squealing at us and really kind of becoming aggressive a bit. Not, but like, not aggressive, like attacking, but climbing on you. And the second dive, and again, you're just down there you're in the kelp forest, swimming around doing your thing. And this otter is just omnipresent. You look around, it's there and it's in your face and it's kind of grabbing you and poking you. Oh and you're gosh. finally done. You get up and... It, I, I caught, cut my dive short because it started to um, chew on my head and it started to kind of like grab it <laughs> and it started to, and it really started to freak me out a bit more. And if you've ever seen otters, um, 
reproduce, like have sex, basically. It's very brutal. The males just rip the females apart, their faces. It's really horrible. Oh, my and so gosh. Once he started, once it's, it was a male, once it started chewing on my head and uh, my high-pressure hose on the scuba tank, I started getting a little, okay, this is not okay. So I caught a couple of times. So, yeah. And, and as I went to the surface, he then started to kind of wrap it himself around my head. And he was getting fairly frisky, we'll say, right? I think he thought I looked pretty nice. Oh, but, um, my But gosh. I found out that, you know, they have the densest fur in the animal kingdom, right? They have a million uh, hairs per square inch. And, cr- and it could have yes. been when there. It was like, it's absolutely true. It's so soft. Like, it was going across my face. I was like, wow, in the midst of this harassment, this really is soft. It feels nice. You know, <laughs> I, can, I can see why they were hunted almost to extinction. <laughs> but... As I came up and I was trying to figure out what to deal with this and I'm stressed out. And I, it's, so I guess the main thing was like, I was really anxious about this because I was in public and I was like, okay, I can't do anything. Okay, Sharkies, I want to interpret this story for you really quick. So basically, similar to sharks and how they mate, it can be pretty brutal. I think we've talked about that before. Female sharks actually have thicker skin to deal with male sharks shredding them because they don't have hands. And so all they have is to grab that female shark with their mouth. It can be pretty brutal in the ocean when you're buoyant, waves are happening, things like this. So basically what happened with Dr. Carlisle is an otter version of that. The males can be still pretty brutal and it started to replicate some of that behavior on Dr. Carlisle's head. Now, fear not, everyone was okay in this situation. The otter was totally fine and safe, and so was Dr. Carlisle. But he did, when he surfaced from that dive, had to get some extra help and a helping hand to remove that otter. Turns out, this otter was a rehabilitated animal that was a little bit used to going up to humans. And so he probably thought, maybe this was someone that has food. I'm going to go investigate. Now, if this happens to you in the wild, fear not. Just try to make space with that wildlife. You never want to engage with it, especially a critically endangered animal, especially a mammal. Uh, I just want to preface that there and make sure you give that animal plenty of space. But thankfully, everyone was safe in this scenario, and Dr. Carlisle has a pretty funny story out of it. Just how awful marine mammals are. I think that's a whole podcast. Oh, that is a whole <laughs> podcast. I mean, people think sharks are awful, and we're like, oh, yeah. no, 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 no. Mammals. <laughs> Mammals are the worst. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Carlisle. That did not disappoint at all. And this entire episode has been so interesting. I learned so much about cookie cutter sharks. I have so many more questions. And I hope that our listeners will walk away learning something and maybe being a bit more curious about cookie cutter sharks. Yeah. Absolutely. Happy to happy to chat anytime and thank you for having me. It's fun. And Dr. Carlisle, uh, where can our sharkies follow you? Where can they follow your work? Uh, nowhere. I am not really on social media. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Published papers. Well, I'm at the University of Delaware. I have an out-of-date website that I probably need to update, but that's about the best I have. Actually, my grad <laughs> students are trying to get me involved, so maybe I need to do that. I yeah. listen to the grad students. <laughs> do listen to the grad. Twitter is where it's at. Yeah. I've got to say. That's, that's what they tell me. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. All right, Sharkies, we'll stay tuned. Maybe you'll find him on the internet somewhere someday. Working somewhere. <laughs> All right. Until next time. Swim you later. <laughs>
you can check out our Patreon, which is in the link tree in our bio on both Twitter and Instagram. And also, don't forget to rate and subscribe so that other people can find our podcast and hopefully hop on the train of loving sharks. This episode was edited by Kayla Shue.